So I take great pleasure in, in inviting you to this afternoon's Participation Cluster Members Seminar. Um, I'm Jackie Shaw from the Research Fellow um, in the Participation Cluster and I'm going to be chairing the meeting today. And I'd also like to introduce our panel. A very special warm welcome to Joanna Wheeler, who's come all the way from South Africa today. Many of you will know her because she was a research fellow here at IDS for many years um, and is now in South Africa working as a researcher, story crafter, facilitator for social justice. And also Joe Howard and Erica Lopez Franco, who are also from the researchers in the participation cluster. So this afternoon, what we're going to be doing is introducing our work on the theory and practice of participatory monitoring and accountability as more contextually grounded and everyday ways to build accountability processes in contrast to the more formal social accountability mechanisms such as budget tracking or community scorecards. In particular, our work with partners worldwide has shown that for the most marginalised people to bring decision makers to account, um, the work needs to be based in their knowledge and their practices if it's to be transformative. And this suggests a more inclusive approach to implementing and um, monitoring the sustainable development goals. So I'm just going to start giving you a little bit of background. So the Participate Knowledge from the Margins Research Initiative um, was led by Joanna Wheeler and Danny Burns from the Participation Cluster. And the three of us also worked on it, as did many other people. And basically, we um, convened a global network of 18 partners working in 30 countries. And we supported those participatory research partners in exploring um, the realities for some of the most marginalized people. And we brought those perspectives into UN deliberations on the post-2015 development framework. The Sustainable Development Goals were agreed in 2015, and Participate had attempted to influence the formation of those um, goals, and particularly contributed to shaping um, the narrative and the global call to leave no one behind. Um, in contrast, and I guess influencing the narrative was more of our focus than influencing the formation of discrete targets. So accountability is encompassed within the sustainable goals. Um, for instance, goal number 16, peace, justice and strong institutions, aims to promote peaceful and inclusive societies for sustainable development, to provide access to justice for all, and to build effective, accountable and inclusive institutions at all levels. And in that sense, we see number 16 as a key. But why is it number 16? How can you have the others without security and without a accountable government? In particular, as well, countries are monitoring and evaluating and reporting on these goals without sufficient attention to 
the needs and the perspectives of the most marginalised, which in effect functions to amplify the views of the more powerful groups at the expense of the least. So part of... Oh. So part of our work is to problematise the SDGs. Um, there is a problem in considering a global target at a global scale, and the difficulties of inclusion are much more <coughs> manifest in those instances because of diversity and inequality and so on. And there are also critical questions about whose knowledges are considered in decision-making forums and how. We also recognise and acknowledge that many believe the SDGs are a waste of time or of a distraction from the real work of social change. But at the same time, they bring opportunities. Um, national governments will get resources relating to the framework and we'll have to report on the SDGs and particularly progress on Leave No One Behind. So this opens up a space for influence at national, sub-regional and local levels. But the key to the success of the SDGs is not in, in the goals but in how they're implemented. So, in terms of the Participate Network of Partners and our collective recent and current research, we've moved um, to, from mobilising research from the margins to leverage influence um, in global spaces, to accompanying research and policy influencing processes with people at the margins about how to monitor those goals and hold governments to account. And I'm going to hand over to Joe Howard to tell you a little bit more about that. Thank you, Jackie. So, the data revolution much proclaimed and enthused about in the framework of the Sustainable Development Goals. But we ask, so what data and what does a data revolution mean? Is it about getting more, more numbers, and more information, or is it about the quality of that data and the inclusion of how that data is gathered, and also the analysis of that data? So in our work that we're reflecting on here today, we were, we've been working with three partners, one in Egypt, um, one in Ghana, and one in South Africa. And, in, and the, the uh, Egyptian partner, there's a picture here, of their, their focus was working on accountability and um, working with the knowledge of children living with HIV AIDS in Egypt, who are a particularly marginalised and excluded group. And what was important in this process was the methods to to access and work with that knowledge with a group that need okay i can carry so in the picture you see um a child they're conducting body mapping with this child and a lot of drawing and storytelling was involved and in the end a collective film was made that drew on the knowledge that was generated through these different methods 
and in order for to protect the uh, protect the this group of children and their carers, the film that was made um, was anonymised. But what's important here, I think, is reflection about what kind of data and how the the, the knowledge that contributes to useful data is not only the is not only um, about numbers and counting, but of course. Complementary to that is the knowledge that people carry in their bodies that's embodied and effective knowledge that they carry in their emotions and that through using participatory methods we were able to surface. And I'd like to just briefly um, go to a film and just show you for a minute um, the process in Egypt, the, um, one of the collective films that they made about the lived experiences of children and adolescents living with HIV AIDS. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um. <coughs> بس مش عشان كنت فاكرة إن أنا عشان ناس بتلاقي الناس اللي مش عندي الناس اللي معاهم كانوا خايفين مني التحليل قال إن هو مصاب أنا مش عارفة أي حاجة عن المرض غير من الشخص اللي بيجيله بيموت كنت خايفة من المرض بس أكتر من كده كنت خايفة إن ابني كمان يكون مصاب في اللحظة دي بالذات ولأول مرة في حياتي فقدت في الانتحار مش بس كده أنا كمان فكرت إن المفروض أموت ابني عشان أنقذه من الأهلية اللي جاية أنا لفيت على مستشفيات كتير لما بنتي الصغيرة كانت تعبانة وهي عندها 40 يوم وفي الآخر التحاليل قالت أنا So that gives you a little taste of the kind of experiences that um, were surfaced through this process and analysed, gathered and then analysed by people who were living in particularly marginalised circumstances. And what's important is it makes visible what has been made invisible, the experiences that are not uh, counted or discussed. <coughs> and also we find that, um, so why is this kind of knowledge important for policymakers? What can it contribute? And the con contribution is that both it contains data that's important for understanding the situation of the people who, are, um, who it concerns, but also it can articulate information on what change is possible. And here in the, we have a policy briefing that we've produced, which is called um, Using Knowledge from the Margins to Meet the SDGs, the Real Data Revolution, which goes more into our arguments. <coughs> So, alternative knowledges, knowledges that are not immediately listened to or heard, the knowledge that can be generated through participatory processes are, illustrate both um, processes of marginalisation and the experience of marginality, and communicate the complexity of social issues rather than uh, reducing problems to one, one dimension. And they can complement and, and sometimes challenge, or necessarily challenge, national data sets and discourses and illuminate some of the gaps. In this picture here, you see a photograph of a woman in the 
a woman in Ghana who um, is part of the group that we've been working with there. So our partner in Ghana is the um, is Radio Ada, which is part of the Community Radio Network. And the Ada women that the community with that Radio Ada is working with um, generate and communicate knowledge through song and dance. And this photo is their bard, um, their singer who composes and sings songs that that communicate, articulate and communicate their struggle. And by, if we were only to hear the official, the, the official version of the issues that they're raising, which are around um, the use, of mis use and misuse of the Songor Salt Lagoon, um, we would be led to believe that the, the best form of development for the Songor would be to relocate these people to another area. But that would be fundamentally wrong for them. And so these data illuminate the challenges for regular social accountability mechanisms to work here and the intersection of the different issues that, that marginalised groups are experiencing. The example in Ghana is about the intersection of patriarchy, corruption, global commercial interests, poverty and rural marginalisation. So um, a single entry or, or um, a one-dimensional approach would not be able to uh, enable reflection and possible solutions to, to challenging some of those marginalising processes. And in South Africa, urban insecurity, racism, poverty and the marginalisation of young people. And this picture here is, um, is part of a digital story that was produced by a member of the Delft Safety Group. So our partner in South Africa, um, Sustainable Livelihoods Foundation, worked with these groups, um, this group to produce um, just pers personal digital stories and also collective video to analyse, both to surface and analyse the issues that they're facing in their community. And we argue that this kind of data most accurately reflects people's experiences of discrimination and exclusion. And it makes connections between the data collection process itself and issues of and possibilities for accountability. Um, Eric is going to talk more about the steps of how we go about that, the methodologies that we, that we and our partners are using, working through from the individual to the collective. And that how these can help us understand the marginalisation happening through historical processes and the impact of these cross-cutting issues of um, economic growth models, globalisation, privatisation, patriarchy and so on. So to build capacities for accountability means starting to build self-confidence in the people who have been systematically pushed to the margins. And I'm going to invite Joanna now to um, talk to us more about how we've been understanding accountability in this research. But first of all, she's going to show um, a couple of short, uh, a short digital story and a short film from the, from the Delft Safety Group. Thanks, Joe. Can you turn off the lights? Yes, please. That would be great. Um, hello, everyone. Good afternoon. It's nice to be back at IBS and see some familiar faces, as well as lots of new ones. Um, I just came off the plane this morning, so apologies if I'm a bit tired. Um, is there anyone here today from South Africa? Okay, um, so because uh, I just wanted to tell you a tiny bit about the context of the films before we watch them so that 
Uh, you have something a little bit to, to, I think they speak for themselves, but there are some things about the context that are quite important to understand. So we're going to watch a short um, personal story by a young Tulsa man who lives in Delft. And then we're going to watch a collective film that was made by a group including the um, Manalisi whose story we're going to watch. And um, this work is coming out of um, uh, a process that has been led uh, at the Sustainable Livelihoods Foundation in Cape Town. So it's based in an urban township. Townships, as pro many of you um, probably know, were established under apartheid as part of spatial segregation. <coughs> so Delft is a township that was actually created post-apartheid, so it is mixed in the categories of apartheid. Um, but it is a place with extremely high levels of unemployment and also extremely high levels of violence. Um, so just to warn you that these films do contain descriptions of violence, which are at times graphic. Um, and if that um, causes you concern, then there is absolutely no problem in stepping out of the room. Okay. Um, in
This is what happens of police brutality. No one from government or service providers helps us to report what happens. We have to rely on community support to get to the police station. We are sent from pillar to post, from police station to hospital, and then again back to police station. There are different requirements, slowing us down each step of the way with no support. This is what one of the problems we face. Our community service providers are never available when we need them. We put our complaints on forms underneath the door as if we're submitting the signals. The fact is, they are never available. Today, 
People are told here, there are four of this many speakers and he came from work that offers Kurka Antaran.
But we thought it was important for you all to see that because the experiences that are being communicated through the, the films are exactly what we're talking about. Um, and sometimes they don't fit neatly into an accountability box um, as we might often understand accountability. So what we have been trying to do in our work is also to reconceptualize accountability from the starting point of those experiences. So if we're talking about accountability in the framework of the SDGs, in a global framework, um, what does it mean to really consider that experience of injustice and marginalization as the starting point for how we understand the meaning of accountability? So what I'm going to try and do, <laughs> hopefully, is take you through what that idea is. And I just, before I do that, I wanted to say that this has really come out of a long, um, quite a long period of research. So I'm going to be drawing on my own research for the, for the past 15 or so years, um, but also the research that has been done by others in Participate. Um, and we also had a grant from Making All Voices Count um, in South Africa. And I think that it would be important to mention that some of the ideas for this also originally came from the Citizenship DRC, which was a research network that was led by John Gaventa, um, that was hosted here at IDS and was also a collaboration. So th this is, these ideas have been sort of coming through quite an extensive period of research in which collective sense-making has contributed to them. So I'm presenting them, but they are not only my ideas. Um, so, what do we mean by participatory accountability? And we're not completely sure that is the right phrase, but that's the one we're going with now. Um, and what we mean by that is that accountability is about, fundamentally about building more equitable and inclusive relationships that redress imbalances of power. And this happens at three levels simultaneously, the personal, the group or the collective, and institutional or systemic levels. And um, a lot of the existing literature on accountability tends to focus more on one or other, usually either the group or the collective or the institutional. But what we have seen through this work is the importance of understanding all three of those levels and how they link together. And this idea of accountability for us is grounded in the micro-level interactions and everyday experiences of the people who are living in marginalization. And it occurs through those groups being able to articulate their knowledge into different spaces, and I'll say more about that in a minute, but also across these different levels, which requires methodologies to translate that knowledge and amplify it. Okay. So that's, um, uh, we're, and we're, I'm going to now say just a little bit more about each of those pieces, but um, that's what we, what we have found through, through this process. So what does this add? Because as any of you who uh, are researchers in this area or who are studying accountability know, there is a lot of work on accountability already. Um, so what is this actually bringing um, to the existing literature and debates? And 
how does it help with something like um, the monitoring of the SDGs, which is this huge you know, global framework. Um, so first of all, uh, it recognizes that state power, not only state power, but especially state power, is present in these micro-level interactions as much as it is in formal processes or spaces. So let me give you an example. When we screened these films for policymakers in the city of Cape Town, um, the response to the film of someone from the Premier's office, who is very influential in policymaking, was to say to the group, um, really sorry, but there's pretty much nothing we can do about Delft. So for you who are keen to get out, I have some programs I can refer you to. Okay, in that one micro-interaction with someone from government, what was being communicated is that your community where you live is a lost cause. And in government, there's nothing we see that we can really do to fix that. We've basically given up. So that idea, which is illustrated by that micro-interaction, is then reflected in multiple other ways. For example, the town, the spatial planning around Delft, the amount of resources that go into Delft, the number of police in Delft, the political will that goes into trying to reform the police in Delft, and it, it is then manifest in many other ways. But it is also recognizable in that specific moment in the way that someone from government talks to people from Delft in a public meeting in which they're raising these issues. So when we talk about micro-interactions, that's what we mean. And one of the findings in our research that was really important is that people have these kinds of interactions all the time. It's not a sense that the state is up there or the state is over there. The representatives of the state are present every day and the frustration is in how they subvert or fail to respond which I think um, Gangsters in Uniform and Mamlisi's story both speak to. So what, what this research has been showing is that accountability requires shifts at, at all these different levels. So the personal level, what do we mean by that? Um, we mean the way in which people see themselves or the validity of the issue they're facing. When Mamlisi was first trying to tell his story about police brutality, he couldn't even call it that because he thought that somehow it was his fault for walking home at night and he shouldn't have been doing that. So he wasn't able to even recognize that he had a valid claim against the police. And that was reinforced by the ways in which he wasn't able to, to make that claim. Um, so this personal dimension is, is very important. It can't just be assumed that that will change when there are changes at other levels. You have to, you have to actually engage with the trauma, both um, historical and ongoing, that people experience as a result of marginalization. The second level around the group or the collective is about how people see shared interests and how they come to act on them together. And this is obviously very complex. It brings up a lot of issues around representation and um, legitimacy and so on. And it is, it, is, it is problematic. But what we watched between the, the, the short story and the film was also a process of the articulation <laughs> of that shared interest. So as a group, what they, the Delft Safety Group came together to do was to say, this is how we are articulating the, the problem in Delft with the police and how we see 
what needs to be done. And there was a huge amount of discussion over what that should be. Um, so that, that process is also really important. Um, then, of course, there's the institutional level, which includes programs, policies, practices, and so on, that directly affect access to services. And these obviously can't be ignored. These are very important. Um, and this is the focus of much of the social accountability work that exists. And finally, there's, a, uh, there's another dimension to that, which is the rules of the game that determine what issues or what groups have weight. Um, so, for example, um, one of the stories we haven't watched by Jackie is about being stabbed and then not going to report it to the police because she says in her story, I didn't report it to the police because they wouldn't have done anything. And what came out through the process is because she's a known drug user and a young woman, she thought that the police weren't, and in fact, don't take her seriously. So therefore, the issue of violence that drug users experience is completely invisibilized. It doesn't even get reported, let alone um, addressed as an accountability failing. So there's systemic issues that are embedding that um, fear in Jackie that makes it, her not able to, to take the claim forward. Um, so what we have been looking at is how these different levels interact with one another and how we can shift them um, using the SDGs as a sort of a test case or an example. Um, and we have also been experimenting and developing methodologies that can translate between these different levels. How do you take a personal story to show to people in government? What does, what, how do they interpret it? What does that mean? Um, what kind of knowledge do you need at these different levels? Um, so what, what else is this adding? Um, so what I'm describing as participatory accountability is treating accountability as both a process and an outcome um, that is occurring on multiple levels. Um, and I think that that comes out of really understanding these everyday experiences of marginality as the entry point. Um, so um, we're starting with powerful embodied experiences of injustice. So in Manlisi's story, he's beaten by the police, and one of the things they do when they're beating him is they, they kick out his front teeth. Now, in the Cape Flats, um, certain people have their front teeth removed to show that they're part of the gang. So by doing that, not only were they hurting him, they were also marking him as a criminal, even though he had nothing to do with any gang. Um, and that, that experience is then accompanied by other forms of marginality. There's no work in Delft. He's just ignored by the police. They refuse to take his case. And all of these things are, are compounding. And this then speaks to another point, which is the slipperiness of how accountability issues are defined. And this happened often in the research that you know, it seems like the accountability issue is one thing, like let's say it's the police, okay, that we're talking about community safety and, and, and the police. But actually, um, the nature of that accountability issue shifts um, as the research unfolds. So it's, at first uh, look, it is about the police, but then it also became about vigilante justice, which is in response to the police failures and about corruption in the participatory forums, which are supposed to oversee the police, 
And so it is a system that we're talking about, rather than an isolated policy process. Um, and I think that we have also recognized in our work the importance of very in-depth analysis of the context. Because the systemic causes of discrimination are usually the ones that get left out. For example, racism in the South African context, and I would say in every context, is extremely important. And yet, it's very rarely spoken about. And how do, how do we understand that in the context of accountability? What is its importance? Um, in South Africa, it relates to segregation, which is still ongoing, spatially and in other terms. It relates to um, trauma that I mentioned earlier. Um, and a, a whole series of issues. So that, you can't understand accountability in the South African context in Delft without understanding this historical and current role of racism. Um, okay, and... Um, yeah, I'm just... Okay, okay so um, also, I, um, for us in the way that we're understanding the aim of accountability, keeping in mind that it is both a process and an outcome, is that um, it, livelihoods and basic needs are indivisible from the recognitions, recognition of rights in people's identity. One without the other is not enough. They have to come together. And that really comes from really understanding people's experience of marginality and how they um, themselves articulate what, what needs to happen. Um, so I'm just going to close with a very quick summary of in what ways participatory accountability takes us uh, or co could complement social accountability. So social accountability generally is focusing on specific methodologies like citizen scorecards, um, budget monitoring, um, and social audits. And it brings together citizen service providers and public authorities to try and resolve specific issues. And there is a lot of evidence that shows that it works, actually, in doing that. Um, there are also critiques about it, that it needs to be made more strategic, more politically informed, and it needs to be joined up better across um, specific cases. So how is participatory accountability different from that? Um, we are framing participatory accountability as explicitly both addressing both systemic and everyday dimensions. Um, and that comes from trying to understand the lived experience of exclusion. And we are interested in the interaction between episodic and everyday engagement. So for example, the comment made by the policymaker towards the people from Delft, as well as the fact that the community policing forum isn't functioning. Those things have to be seen in relation to one another. And um, finally, it takes a relational approach, which some people do in social accountability, but for us this is very central. Recognizing that government and politics have many different faces, and all of them are important to understanding accountability. And I'm going to stop there, because Erica is going to tell us how to do this. <laughs> yes. In ten minutes. That's all you need. Or five. <laughs> Okay, so yes, how to do it? Well, I'm not gonna tell you how our partners did it because they've been, first of all, working on these things and under this project or under this grant, it was only 18 months that they worked, but they've all been organizations working in issues in each of the countries, Egypt, South Africa, and Ghana for 
you know, four or five years or even more. So in a way, it's just to say that these are organizations which we named in, I, I don't know if in the policy briefs, but they, they call themselves translocators. So they kind of translate between like different knowledges, so the knowledge from the community and the people, but also support a lot the dialogue with the formal knowledge spaces, which is policy forums or academic forums, etc. Um, this image is continuing a bit with, it's part of the process that Joanna worked closely with, uh, with the Delft Safety Group. And maybe you can vaguely see it's a, it's a process of very visual, non, um, let's say, non-word non or non-based uh, um, work on power analysis. So uh, that was like very important to show for me because it says that it's not all about reading and writing and discussing policies, etc. So the first thing, and I only have a slide, but hopefully I don't talk for too long. Oh, my notes are there. Can you pass me my notebook? <laughs> Thank you. Um, so firstly, both Joe and Joanna, uh, spoke about how central methods are in this process of building central to participatory monitoring and accountability, but also to surfacing this knowledge from the margins, this how we've called it. Some can criticize how we're calling it, the knowledge from the margins. Um, the first learning is that methods need to build power within and power with, and this is essential. So. As we have seen for uh, th the three groups of people that uh, the organizations have been working with, um, marginalization is what they live every day. It's not that at some point they were privileged and then they were dispossessed. Like they've always, they, they live in an interaction and of, of different uh, processes that have excluded them from most decision making. And for women, this includes in their households. You know, they don't have even a say in what's going on inside their houses. So how do you expect people to come suddenly to a meeting or a focus group discussion and be open about these things and just talk about their problems and say, oh yeah, my right is to do this. It's impossible. So that's where the power within element of it is, uh, comes here. Uh, let's say it's, it says like you need to be, build trust, you need to build uh, an awareness or support a process that, that people recognize that it is the system that has excluded them and that it's not their fault that they are in this position and that they're being violated in any ways. Um, and then the, the other element is the power with. So you can do a lot with a personal dimension of uh, uh, working, for example, through the digital storytellings, which both processes did, but then uh, it kind of stays in a, in a part of like, okay, this is my life. But once you bring in the collective, you are able to connect to others' experiences which are similar to yours. And then you realize that, okay, this is not only me and it's not happening only to me, but it is a situation that's, that's kind of pervasive in our society or in the context where I'm, where I'm living. So that takes time. And that, of course, for example, in the case of Egypt, which was the first time they worked, pretty much is all they did throughout the whole 18 months, like trying to build that trust and that acknowledgement of 
um, let's say the things that we are living are not fair and we are a group that can maybe work together. Um, then the second one is that methods or any method, any, any process cannot be depoliticized. So everything has a consequence of like of who you who you invite, where you hold the meeting, who feels comfortable being in that meeting. And this is very important because most of the time uh, development programs and you know, we set them or we set meetings and, and focus groups or any discussion in places where, where we as researchers or as people from NGOs feel comfortable and safe and that we think that it's okay and it's kind of neutral, but we never think, oh, how is this person or how is the group that we're working with going to feel entering into a hotel downtown? which has like security guards, if they are scared of the police, for example, you know, and, and they've received violence from the police. So a lot of the times, uh, social accountability processes have been, you know, there's a lot of, uh, let's say, uh, claims saying, oh, people just don't want to participate. They, they just drift away, they just stop coming. But then it's like, yeah, but why, why is that? Like, were you inclusive? Like, were they deciding where to hold the meetings and, and the timings of those meetings and the timings of the whole processes? And, and, or was it all, you had a schedule and an agenda and you expected them to come to all of this, you know, and just to attend and be there and follow your guidance? Um, so in that sense, for example, um, we have a, a clear a clear, uh, let's say, linked about the choice of methods. So we had a lot of, you know, discussions if you can prompt as a facilitator of a participatory accountability process, you can say, okay, we are going to organize a, a demonstration or we're going to organize a, a public seminar on this. And what we learned through this 18 months and the organizations told us it's like no you can't we learned and we also saw that people once they feel that they have the confidence to do so and this was very evident for the egypt case they were all about we don't want to even have our voices in the in the stories because we can be identified and we are totally scared of being identified as living with hiv or our children living with hiv but at the end they were really really up for showing the, the, the situation to the, to the people from the Ni National Health Service, and they were really clearly present. So those who still feared, they didn't have to be present, and they were not forced to be in the policy engagement event. But others, who at the beginning were as scared as well, ended up coming and showing you know, their faces and you know, publicly recognizing th themselves as people who have HIV, who need services and proper medicines to, to treat their condition. So in a way, that's how we are envisaging uh, some of these, these methods. And of course, the capacity to then navigate the formal accountability mechanisms. So we are not trying to say that formal accountability mechanisms are all you know, not working or are um, they have proved, like there's been a lot of studies and there's been a lot of trying on this, 
But what we did see, and this also comes as Joanna says, like she's doing some work, I've also done some work in Mozambique, and it's really hard to bring into those formal processes, even if they are led by NGOs, uh, those most vulnerable or those less out, you know, spoken and confident, because people just don't come and show up uh, to a social audit process if they feel they're not capable of contributing. And this happens, as, we, as, I, as I've been trying to say all the time, like this is not to say that, that every single citizen must go through these three, <laughs> three processes of like, but it is very important for those people who have been systematically excluded and not only for decades, some people have been for, you know, since there are some ethnicities, for example, Roma communities, for centuries, right? So, so this is not something that's going to change in 18 months or less. Um, so I think that at the core of all of these has been the fact that uh, as practitioners and people who either want to design social account, well, participatory accountability or take it seriously, uh, participation within other accountability processes, you must always look, like, center yourself on critical reflexivity and really question, like, is this my decision or people's decision or the group's decision? So um, that's kind of what, what we conclude about the methods. I don't, I'm not gonna go into the intersectionality because maybe you want to go, Jackie, to wrap it up. <laughs> but it is kind of linked. So I'd like to um, say a big thank you to Joe, Joanna and Erica for giving us an insight into the participatory monitoring and accountability program. But I'd like to now open the floor up to any questions. So what I thought we'd do is maybe Take questions in batches of three and then ask the panel to respond. So, does anyone want to kick us off with a question? Can you go ahead and speak to some of the issues of intersectionality? <laughs> I was wondering that. In, um, in uh, grouping different people together and um, yeah, using everyday experiences when you're working with different groups of marginalized people and trying to get at those who maybe don't feel as comfortable speaking in, in terms of gathering space and various groups. Thank you. That's a great question. Any more? It's also clear. Or so confusing. Um, well, normally, <laughs> every democracy is dysfunctional in its own special way, um, including our own. Uh, so how much, I don't know what experience you've had of these countries, um, in order to really contextualize these very specific battles for accountability, because at the end of the day, these are questions of values and constructions of what is possible. And of course, if your starting point is Great Britain, then, uh, you know, the, the road is long. So national specificity is long. How important were they to sort of model what you were doing? Okay, can we have another one? I guess um, in the context of like societies like South Africa, a lot of this marginal, marginal, marginalization isn't quite accidental. Like it's, you know, in, in um, whether it's South Africa based on color or social class or whether it's India where it's caste system based, it's often the people who are doing the marginal, marginalization know that they're doing that. So with this methodology and with the results that come from it, 
um, where, where do you go next? Like, what if you go to the, you know, the Western Cape premiere and she says that, sorry, like, we can't do anything. So how, how do you move forward from, from that? Okay, so I'd like to respond to I can do. So we've been talking today about the participatory monitoring and accountability program, um, which finished in March, March 2017. Yeah. <laughs> and following that, we got another grant um, to do some work around intersectionality because we had identified that intersecting inequalities or one of the reasons that particular people or with their own combination of inequalities um, are not able to participate in, in more open spaces. And so this current grant is looking at pathways from understanding those experiences of intersectionality to building accountable relationships. So in a sense, that's, that's the next phase and we're doing that research now but you are very bright and insightful to say that it's a tricky thing because in some ways the tension we're grappling with is that if we don't address and understand intersecting inequalities, then there will always be people who are marginalised in any space and how we create an environment where all those people with their different uh, marginalities can participate is tricky. And if we work, and very often what we do is we're working to build a collective identity for collective power across those differences, but then those differences get marginalised. <coughs> if we work towards bringing out the diversity, then it can be quite a painful thing. So in a sense, it's a little early to say what our conclusions are on that, but that's very much the kind of work we're grappling with at the moment. Would anyone do you want to add anything? To that? You can watch that one. I'll, take I'll take. I'll say something briefly about context, um, and then pass on. Um, but yes, context is fundamentally important. And Joanna highlighted in her part of the presentation about how that was part of how we analysed um, the three processes and what they meant was that, um, or what we learned from that, a key learning was that we have to um, fully understand the context and that the interlocutor or the translocutor organisation that works with a particularly marginalised group um, needs to be, um, is, is, is key in uh, supporting and accompanying a process that, and they have to be embedded in the local context and understand what the political opportunities are and how to navigate them. And that helps in this process of participatory accountability where you have on the one hand this, this process going on at the personal and collective level with the, with the group, but also at the same time they're looking for opportunities to engage with the system, to engage with decision makers, and where those are and which ones are appropriate and safe to approach at what time, you have to understand the context very well. In the case of Egypt, be able to navigate the kind of political environment they were working in as, uh, as an NGO and work with a group that was extremely marginalised and it was a taboo to talk about the issues they were facing and also to have access to be able to work out who within the system could be an ally and so on. Let me pass on. I've got, I've got my chance. Um, so I'm not sure if we said this, but 
these are very long-term processes that we're talking about. We're talking about years. This is not like one or two workshops. <laughs> so, you know, the issues of intersectionality and of, I would say not just national specificity, but local specificity to the how global, national, and other levels of government interconnect and clash at the local level, those things emerge over time. And so this, this is not a quick fix. This is not a shortcut. This is about a very sustained <coughs> commitment to working with people over time. And that can be very hard to do in a development context or an aid context. Um, so, yes, uh, that's a very good question about intentional marginality, because I think that there is a mostly false assumption that the reason that their accountability uh, problems are not resolved is a lack of information. So if you only could just inform policymakers that, uh, you know, drug users are not able to um, file complaints with the police, then they would surely make it possible for them to do so. No. This is not about a lack of information. People in power know this is happening, absolutely. So you are then faced with working with groups who are trying to confront um, political interests which are arrayed against them. And that means that you have got to find allies. And this, I think, is the potential of the SDGs. Because it, it's outside of that very specific context. So if you, can, <laughs> you can use it strategically to intervene you know, at, a, at a specific point where you can say, but South Africa has signed up to these global goals. So now what? Um, that's not enough to, to change the situation, but I think it offers another lever. Um, and those allies are really important, and one of, we didn't go into this, but uh, in Participate, and I think in the work subsequently, we have been really experimenting with an empathy-based approach to policymaking. So the first step is to try and get people who may be allies to genuinely put themselves in the position of someone else. Uh, and that creates a different basis for dialogue. So that's something we've been trying to work with. And it, it opens up um, possible alliances. So now the Delft Safety Group has an ally who is in the Western Cape Parliament and who is now kind of working with the group to do a whole number of things. And the first step in sort of um, working with her as an ally was to meet with her and with a small group and show her the stories. And she, she couldn't help but respond to them as a person. And that then allowed the group to talk to her in a different way. So it's, you know, it's, it's um, we, yeah, we didn't say that before, but I think that's another part of how the allies can be found or cultivated. I, I mean, just, I don't need, I have also a mic, so. Um, and what Joanna is saying is like, you cannot, it's really hard to, to show these realities to someone who has always been like middle class or upper caste or, you know, because we've never lived them and we've never lived there and unless you voluntarily went and did some work with 
communities, you would have seen what it is to, to live in these places, and even so you are somehow detached. So I would say that also this empathy has been a lot central to the development of these visual methods. So the, visual, the whole participatory visual methods component that started since influencing the post-2015 agenda had that aim of bringing the reality of what people live on a daily basis to, to the majority of, of, of us who are able to sit in this type of um, you know, conversations and say life is much more harder than you think and but very importantly from the own voices of the people so not interpreting or wanting to interpret what they mean or what they feel but they themselves create these stories they themselves draw it you know so all of that process is part of what I guess we explore more in depth in the knowledge from the margins policy read but why having that space to articulate your knowledge and put it out there to someone who's seen as more um, you know, intelligent because they have a, a policy um, you know, post in the government or an academic post in a university. Uh, but the, that connection, that visual connection, really allows to, to understand things that you cannot get from a report you know, from, or from this policy brief. Like there's no way that, that that happens. So that's why the methods are so central, not only to creating what we're talking about, but to actually sharing them and making others uh, gener like, you know, generate that empathy. So that's what we've discovered a lot. So do we have any other questions? Yeah, I'm interested in this empathy-based approach. I, I want to understand if the methodologies used are only based in communicating the stakeholders that are decision makers and the excluded population through videos and with the technology approach, or if you also use some technology, some methodologies more about, I don't know, personal empathy or restorative justice approaches, because I think that personal conversation and empowerment to say what are your real feelings and needs in a personal way, it's much more powerful than a video. That's my own experience. I don't know if you had a different experience with this kind of, of technology approach than that, that I'm not so used to see. Any other questions? Uh, one, one's a point and, one, and another one's a question. So just to um, pick up on the, um, sorry, I'm Emily and I work on the Action for Accountability Program at um, And we recently had a workshop last week and there was an interesting anecdote around the current um, um, minister for government who, uh, in the UK, who was, um, let's say, Tories have a certain kind of uh, approach towards um, development, and although they're completely committed to it, there's a lot of them who are kind of, you know, what's the value of money and taxpayer money, uh, tax money, and it's almost like a negative attitude towards it. And uh, and uh, and she sort of was part of that uh, rhetoric, and then she got flown out to places and met people, and funnily enough, things changed. So it's just to pick up on the, the point that one of the that one of the questions that actually when you put someone in that context, it, it mm. can make a big difference, no matter what their original political stance is. So it was interesting to have that backed up last week. My question was around risk. So um, I think people who have been, you know, experienced marginalisation, you know, and, and internalised it, 
um, in many ways, and they've maybe accepted it, because um, if they hadn't accepted it, perhaps they would have tested and rebelled and not be in that same marginalised space. What is the risk of externalising that kind of marginalisation? And did you find experiences where, you know, you might have five people who all have the same external marginalisation kind of experiences, but internally they, they, they deal with them differently? So one person's reaction might be like, you know, eventually, to think this is unfair, I'm going to go and rebel. Another person is to, is to kind of not be able to, to make that leap and to kind of think, well, no, but I am a lower caste and that's just how history is. And, and it's almost more risky for them to kind of step out of that and then take responsibility in a way um, and end up being a victim. Um, so how do you manage the, the fact that in that process of getting people to kind of externalise their modulation, that they will have make different reactions to it, because some of which are almost kind of aggressive and, and kind of going in the opposite direction that they want to How do you deal with that, especially when you're kind of doing it in a kind of a, a group space where, you know, you can have sort of a knock on reaction, someone responding to, to, to somebody else and says it's up. Okay, so Yeah, so I am Pedro from the digital technology cluster. So I agree with what you presented. So these talk a lot to what I have seen, what I have been part of, and I think this, this is the way. But for me, my question, my real question here is, how do we get a researcher out of these processes? Because if this is going to have any effect, so we are talking about very particular situations, very micro spaces, very micro problems, and if the voices of the marginalized, in order to be heard, somehow need the, the, the catalysis of, mm. of a researcher, of a, a grant, uh, etc. So this is not going to change much. So somehow for me, my question would be, if this is meaningful, I have to find a way for these processes to, in some way, to, to be able to self-catalyze. Mm -hmm. And uh, I do not have any mm -hmm. answer to that, but maybe do. Yeah. Yeah. Because one at the back will take at the same time as well. Um, a similar question. Um, I want to know how do you, um, in specific um, contexts and situations, um, deal with the power relations between you and the participants? So um, you mentioned that you don't, um, you need to keep your role as a facilitator and not take the next step or like suggest the next step for them. But then in a lot of cases, you probably need to. Um, I don't know, like perform the task of a guide. Um, I just want to know how are you balancing this um, two tasks? Mm -hmm. so <laughs> um, I think we'll all just dip in wherever <laughs> we feel the spirit moves us. Um, I thought my, my first thought to the first question was about um, othering. Um, how did you bring the first question? Um, it was around empathy-based yeah. approaches and whether the technology and digital is the best thing and whether we use other ways and other materials. So um, I'm sure Joanna wanted to talk more about empathy-based empathy work, but um, mm. my thought on it and drawing on other work as well um, is that um, through tapping into people's empathy, you help them to see how they are othering the other, even when they're not 
So sometimes, yes, they do it with fully aware of what they're doing. There is, a, there is very clear racism or classism, whatever it is. But at other times, it's, it's, it's internalised, the invisible power of social norms and so on. And through process of empathy, it's seeing another human being and seeing and hearing their words and hearing them and helps to break down that um, instinctive othering that I think somehow is, is very much a part of how we operate and is so problematic. Um, then the risk. Can I, can I add an example to that? that one. No, no, go. just... Why don't we... I'll pass that one on. But I think this works, isn't it? Yeah, yeah no, sorry. <laughs> no, I just wanted to say, because you were saying about non-visual, like non-mediated kind of video-mediated things, and the example of Ghana, actually, we didn't show it because they don't use technology. <laughs> I mean, they use radio, and then what they use is their traditional ways of... For a long time, they've developed in you know, the tribes and their clans. They have their own, let's say, means of accountability that they've used and that they're being, let's say, depleted by representative democracy in a way because now you have the local assemblies and the, you know, so, so more actors enter into the game of who is responsible for this. Is it our local chiefs? Is it the local assembly? Is it actually the president? So, so people who are let's say literate who have not gone through formal education, they still take as their main, let's say, account, hold accountable their chiefs. They still see them as the ones who should be more knowledgeable, guide them. So all the process that they've done has been through their own songs and dance. And these are not songs that are like made up just at the moment, I mean, some are, but they are all based on a legacy of this tribe that has used these processes and, and festivals, like, like the, the local Ada festival was in August, and that was like a very important space for the women's group to, to, to do something. And, you know, there's so many symbolisms that are attached to how they perform their accountability actions. And it's not a lot, not nothing to do with video and, and social media or anything. And the other thing, the only thing that it's more technology-based is the community radio. But that's kind of what they see their role is as amplifying the message to those people who cannot go and see the dance, and because it's in local language, you know, it it the, it spread across the whole region, etc. So that's kind of an example of how. There are other ways that are not technology mediated. Risk. <laughs> okay, um, just to come in on the, the questions about the power relations and the role of technology and the risk. So we didn't explain a lot about the detail of the methodology, but there is actually quite a lot in the detail of the methodology that's really important. Um, I don't want to speak for everyone, but for me, I don't see technology as a tool. For me, technology is about how knowledge is mediated. And so, you, you know, I see technology in a broader sense. And the kind of processes that you saw here, for example, the story process, that is a minimum of an eight-day process, accompanied by a trauma counselor, in which there are 
a lot of different ways for people to express themselves, including through movement, through singing, through drawing, through uh, modeling, uh, like sculpture, like through like this sort of thing, um, through speaking and through being heard. So all of that is part of how people are able to tell their stories. It's not about making a film. <laughs> people may choose to make a film, or they may choose to make a memory box, or they may choose to make a, a drama, or they may, it doesn't matter, what they, they decide what they make, and they decide what happens to it, and they may decide not to share it at all. So part of the process is that it is their own story. Um, and so the issue of externalizing trauma and, and who joins that process, both those things are really important. And it's not like, you know, um, I go to Delft and say, hey, who wants to come tell me a story about your trauma? No. Okay, there is a long process of negotiation in which people, we show people an example of a story, we explain what we're doing, who Sustainable Livelihoods Foundation is, where the money is coming from, what this is all about, what we discuss the themes, and then people decide if they want to join this process. So the people who are joining have opted in and are allowed to also opt out. It's, 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 it's actually quite a complex sort of um, dance, which has its own accountability challenges. So this is online. If you want to read more specifically about the methodology, that was just a very little bit. There's a lot more that there is to say about that, but I won't. Um, we've constructed this report, which is from the work in South Africa, with findings and methodology together. So one side is findings and one side is methodology because we don't see them as being able to be separated. So if you look at this report, what you'll see is this is what happened when we tried to do this. This is how it went. These were the challenges. This is what it means to be a foreign white person in a group of South Africans um, facilitating this kind of process. Okay, so I think, you know, all of those things, um, but I, I mean, I've done, I think I've done about 70 story workshops in different countries, and I won't facilitate them now without trauma counselors present. So. I'd just like to add something quickly on um, risk, particularly in terms of um, some of the visual tools, actually I don't call them tools, I have the visual approaches we use. Um, because obviously in this kind of sharing world we live in, there is an assumption that if you're recording something, it is to share. Um, and that's very much not our approach. For me, the, the opportunity of the kind of approaches we use and the risks are intertwined. So it's at its very simplest level, the opportunity for people who have not been heard to have a voice is intimately tied up with the risk of inappropriate exposure for vulnerable groups or people, or the risk of backlash and so on. You can't have one without the other. So then our practice becomes about being mindful of that and understanding the risks. And my part of my research, um, looking at participatory video, not as a filmmaking method, but as a way of engaging with people to help them or provide an opportunity for them to explore their situation, maybe communicate to the people they wanted to, 
was looking at the risks and the possibilities. And I identified eight key risks and possibilities. The knowledge in pra or practice is then how you negotiate those. So I, it, we can't go into that now. But at, at a very simple level, for me, my processes are always confidential to begin with. So we do record video, or we do do other things. But it's not for anyone but the group until the group decides they want to talk to other people. And then when they do, it's not about talking to the whole world. It's about thinking very carefully, as we do, about what we are prepared to say with our friends compared to a much wider audience. Um, and that's part of the process. Um, about the do we always need a catalyst and um, and I was thinking back to Paolo Freire who did think you needed a catalyst and then to community organizing and Alinsky who did think you needed a catalyst and but the catalyst doesn't need to be a researcher from an academic institute or an NGO person um, and I think at least in, in the project we've been talking about, the, the programme we've been talking about today, one of, one of the things that we learned and um, as we analysed it was the importance of linking these kind of processes and our kind of support in, of them into um, work, uh, linking them to social movements. So, or community-based processes that, that will continue. Like Joanna said, these processes have been going on for a long time in, in most cases. And uh, the partners we work with are, are locally embedded. And Community Radio in Ghana, for example, whether or not we support or accompany them or manage to get some money to them, they will continue working with that group. They won't end because the, the money's over. They are a locally embedded and very committed organization. And so the possibility, and in, yeah, the possibility of supporting um, longer-term community and social movement processes is, is really important. And I will add to that, because I think that, well, maybe I'm being very cynical here, but it's like you're going to give millions to the central government to design a statistical program system, you know, and you cannot give some to people who are catalyzing these sorts of things on the ground. So in a way, it's, it's also, I think, for me, a call to say data is like you're giving money to data and to the data revolution and you know to really like disaggregate all these numbers, blah, 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 have amazing databases who no one can understand except you have a PhD. But then it's like, yeah, but then you don't want to give a grant to a small grassroots organization to to do these sorts of processes and to really bring in perspectives that are not captured by, by that data. So I see more of our role to keep advocating for let's give money to these things because they matter and they must be funded because as you say, not like what John said about their livelihoods and needs. Like it is hard when you need to battle, do I go to work and feed my kids or do I participate in an eight day workshop? You know, so that's always the trickiness with these things. It's like, and why is it wrong to pay for those people for their eight days of time? If you pay a researcher, I don't know how many pounds per day to, to facilitate it. You know, so in a way, it's all like a bit of a, yeah, changing a lot the, the 
the discourse and the, the, the rules of the game that we play in. But I think that if we are here at IDS and we have some some like external <laughs> voice to, to, that's what we kind of stand for. It's like give money also to these processes because they matter and they do bring other things that the rest don't. Thank you, Eric. I know there are other people who'd like to ask questions, but I'm afraid we Maybe we let everyone go into the session. We have some policy briefs over there, and obviously, do we have anywhere to point people to if they want to find out more? Um, but I'd like to finish to once more saying thank you very much to everyone on the panel.